Hello everyone and welcome to today's exciting webinar. I am Lucia Moya and the host for today's event. I'm also a graduate research assistant at the University of Illinois under the supervision of Professor Timothy D. Stark in the Department of Civil Engineering. Professor Stark is attending the IGS conference in Australia this week. This is our seventh webinar of 2022, and the remaining seven webinars for 2022 have already been scheduled with great speakers and timely topics, which I will show in the last slide. During today's webinar, we welcome questions and comments, which can be typed into the question box in the control panel. You may send in your questions at any time during the presentation, and our speaker will address them at the end of today's presentation. A PDF of the slides and reference materials are available now in the handout section of the GoToWebinar. The recording of this webinar and the slides and materials will be made available on the FGI website after today's presentation. Also, PDH certificates will be sent automatically to all who attended the entire webinar. In today's webinar, the speaker is Dimitrios Secos. Professor Secos is an Associate Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of California at Berkeley. His teaching and research are focused on geoenvironmental engineering and in particular waste geotechnics and geosynthetics. He completed his master's and PhD degrees at the UC Berkeley with a focus on engineering properties of municipal solid waste and more recently remote sensing reconnaissance of landfills. The title of Professor Seco's webinar is Waste Settlement Measurements Using Unmanned Aerial Vehicles on MSW Landfills. Professor Secos, thanks for squeezing this webinar in your busy schedule and joining us from Berkeley, California. The webinar control is yours. Thank you very much, Lucia. I hope you can all hear me well. It's a, it's a pleasure to, uh, to, to talk to you today and I hope you'll find this presentation um, uh, interesting and worth your time. So, um, uh, as, uh, as we discussed, we're going to talk about waste settlement measurements using unmanned aerial vehicles on municipal solid waste landfills. And then um, uh, before I get too far, I want to recognize that people who have been contributing to this work. Uh, Cassie Sampain, uh, who was a master's student at the at University of Michigan, where I was uh, before I moved to Berkeley about two years ago. Uh, John Manusakis, who helped with some of the data analysis. Jerry Lynch, who was also a professor at the University of Michigan and is now dean at uh, Duke University, and Scott O'Laughlin, which is uh, one of the man is the manager of the City of Midland landfill in Michigan, who facilitated access to the to the site. Uh, I also want to recognize funding support from the ERF uh, and the National Science Foundation. Before I talk about UAVs and what we're measuring exactly and uh, how that relates to to geosynthetics and, of course, post-closure development of landfills. Um, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page about, you know, how uh, we currently measure uh, 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 settlements, how we model settlements, and then talk a little bit about the deficiencies or simplification of these approaches and, um, and make sure that uh, we have this background. And then I will describe the approach with using UAVs and the why it's a possibly better approach and uh, how to do it and example results at that from two landfills. Um, so I hope it will be useful. I, I, I should mention that in the first part of the presentation, uh, about uh, nearly uh, 20 years ago, I did my PhD on solid waste mechanics, focusing on strength, compressibility, dynamic properties, and um, and most recently, I have been working with UAVs for disaster response and and uh, sustainability. And so this presentation is actually bringing the two together. And so let's talk about settlements on waste. Um, first of all, there are a number of mechanisms uh, by which settlements occur in, in landfills. Um, and there are many more than what we typically have in soils, for those of you that are on the geotechnical engineering side. And we have the settlement due to mechanical compression, which will be basically an application of a load. That load could be the additional weight of waste placed on top of the previous, wa uh, previous waste. Uh, and, the, and the waste will compress because of that. Um, however, there are also physical and chemical processes associated with change in the material in the solid fraction of the waste um, due to a number of uh, chemical processes such as corrosion, Oxid oxidation 
and even in some cases combustion. There are also physical processes, softening of the material as, it, as liquids are going through the waste mass and changes that are taking associated with that. But also very, very importantly, in all landfills around the world, sometimes more, sometimes less, but all of them, we have significant uh, waste degradation or decomposition. And landfills typically start aerobic, but very, very quickly become anaerobic. And so there's methane that's generated, and I'm sure you're dealing with that all the time. Finally, as these changes are taking place, solid fractions are changing, uh, deteriorating, there is a liquids transferring, there are particles that are moving, we call that raveling, but it's happening within the waste mass. They're dislocating from where they are because maybe the stuff below became softened or disappeared or uh, hydro was hydrolyzed, and then that moves. And that also is a contribution of, um, to settlement. So when we are in the field, it's difficult to discern the contribution of each mechanism, but it is important to recognize that all of them happen. However, what we have seen both in the field and in the lab uh, is that we can have significant settlements, sometimes reaching 50% of the original thickness of the, of the waste. And so it's important to recognize that, that we, we are dealing with significant amounts of settlement. Now, the, there are a number of factors that affect the amount and the rate but also the amount of settlement that is that is uh, taking place and the first and most important is the type and waste composition and um, waste that is generally more organic uh, that is uh, more loosely placed with less compaction effort will tend to compress more to a load and also degrade more uh, stress that is more confined uh, uh, also is to higher stress will compress further and leachate and liquid recirculation or even liquids recir uh, not recirculated but permeating through the waste mass in wetter environments uh, will also have a significant impact on the settlements because of the process i mentioned before especially the biodegradation however we also see that landfill operations and by that there's a number of them, it definitely involves compaction of the material, but also the amount of daily soil cover used, as well as whether you're recirculating liquids, has an important application. The more soil is being placed, the less compressible the material is as a total. Um, and um, finally, where you are, where your landfill is in the environment is very, very important. Areas that are drier, have lower precipitation, tend to compress less. Uh, short, uh, lo uh, short, in, um, longer take longer to compress. They compress less than areas where you have significant precipitation. So I've been working as a consultant and as a researcher on a number of landfills, and just uh, have worked in landfills in California, Arizona, Greece, and on the other hand, the landfills in the Northeast and Michigan, and those have very significant differences in terms of the amount of liquids that are going in what's happening in the waste mass and the consequences of, of, that, of that environment. And, and you cannot really easily stop it. You can manage surface water, but liquids will go in, even if, if it's a subtitle D, uh, dry tomb type of land. So uh, for those of you on the geotechnical side, uh, uh, we, we, for soils, we divide material in a three-phase system where you have the air or gas phase, and then we have the liquid phase, and then we have also the, 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 the solid phase. And in this case, we have the solid phase. Is portion of it is non-biodegradable, is inorganic. And that doesn't mean it does not compress, but it doesn't degrade. And the portion of it is biodegradable. And from that portion that is biodegradable, some of it may, may have access to liquids. Microbes can go there. It can degrade. Some of it is not accessible to liquids because of how the liquids are going in through the waste mass. And although it could degrade, it is not degrading fast or you know, taking a long time to degrade. And, um, and that is important to recognize. What is important to recognize also is that you cannot, and I'll show you more of that later, but you cannot separate these processes. I mean, the, the, the disappearance, the or not disappearance, but the, the, the change, the phase change, the hydrolysis of the solid waste in the solid phase 
really becomes liquid and that and gas and that actually affects also the structure of the waste which tends to be anisotropic and the uh, arrangement of other particles that may be inorganic okay and we have a tendency to compartmentalize some of these problems but it is important to recognize the big picture because that full picture is what's happening in the field so let's talk about how we model settlements and um, first and there are a number of ways uh, i have here a few most important most common ones i will say uh, but there are a number of ways and so i'll actually appreciate to hear if you're using if you're following different approaches than what i'm showing here and this is based on my experience as a practitioner and a researcher in, the, in this area but i know there are significant differences from place to place and so the, the originally sours in 1973 divided the sediments of waste in two components primarily um what we call immediate compression and um, and that is shown here with this equation where the sediment from immediate compression is basically related to the thickness of the waste material which is shown here with h naught and uh, times the logarithm of the additional load that is taking place so if we add another layer of waste that has some weight that will be added on top of the previous one and will increase the stresses compressing that waste uh, as a, uh, and but it is all affected by and uh, the parameter multiplied by parameter here which we call the modified primary compression index and this equation didn't come out of nowhere this is an equation we use in soils for for consolidation of clays although the process here is very very different we don't have the consolidation process but um i think the, the traditionally geotechnical engineers trying to approach this this material they started using approaches used in soils and they, those have uh, are still used now so that modified primary compression index is, is a high number it uh, ranges from 0.15 to 0.55 it can be a bit lower for older landfills i'll show you more data about that right so the summary is if you know how much load you're applying and you know the thickness of the waste you have an estimate of the property of that property you can calculate the the immediate compression the second part is the long-term secondary settlement um, uh, again this is again related used in soils for creep only although here it's used for a number of factors including the biodegradation and that secondary settlement is time dependent it's a, is related to the logarithm of time so if you have for example uh, at the end of the application of the load you actually have a, a, a you can calculate at different times how much settlement you have uh, again the thickness of the waste and we use this sysabay e a modified secondary compression index and, and that takes value as i will show you from 0.03 to 0.2 which is easily 10 times higher than the equivalent factor that we use in clays which are soft soils and generally are the ones that we're dealing with in uh, in geotechnical engineers as, as problematic materials from perspective of settlement and so here in waste we see easily just from that empirically speaking 10 times more settlement than what you will get in a soft clay material and so uh, this the same equation here i want to just explain the, with this sketch this is the application of the load here this is time versus vertical strain you have the application of the load the material compresses significantly that is described here by the c sub c coefficient the first equation of the two that i showed and then it slows down with time but you can see that with the logarithm of time here you have the logarithm it's still compressing at some rate which is basically the c sub alpha c sub ae okay alpha e and that slope here is really the parameter that we're talking about okay and so i'm hoping this helps now if you if you look at the literature and you start tracking um, you know what different values have been calculated in the lab and in the field especially in the field being most important uh, you will find a whole range of value and uh, the summary is what i described before uh, but i want i wanted to point out this table in case it's useful this is from a paper by sharma and d and uh, on the municipal solid waste settlement and um, here you can see they have compiled from the literature typical c sub c values this is a coefficient used for the primary compression for response to a load 
And this is sysab alpha e is the parameter that is used for um, for the long-term settlement, which involve, involves also not just creep, as I said, but also by degradation and other factors. All right. So I think um, I wanted to add this table for completeness. And I know some of you know that stuff, but I, I wasn't sure about the audience if everybody has this background. So I thought it would be useful to be on the same page. Now, there are other models. And I won't go to the more detail because I don't think that's the, 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 the focus of, uh, of today's presentation. Just want to make sure we're on the same page. But there are other models like the power creep model uh, and the hyperbolic model that also can fit settlements, long-term settlements. We're talking about a long-term settlement here and, uh, and th that was observed at landfills. And instead of using the C sub alpha E para, uh, uh, coefficient, they use other coefficients such as the M, for example, here in the N, or the uh, row zero in the case of the hyperbolic. Uh, there is also the exponential, which is a bit more complicated as a term, but also again, it has this alpha and beta parameters, uh, lambda coefficient that is also dependent of uh, uh, time dependent, and uh, to capture the time dependency. Bottom line, what I want to say about these models is that they're all very, very empirical. There is nothing in these equations that I've shown you that really has a physical basis behind it. They just have the capability, these models, to capture empirically the trends of the data that we see. And that's why they have worked. Okay. So I wanted to summarize these comments so what, uh, and, and make sure that uh, you recognize that, some of you I'm sure are, that these models may work, but are empirical. They do not account for the degradation of the waste, the process that are happening there. And the way they work is you have uh, some field data, like the ones that I'm going to show you later today. You can match these curves to this field data. And assuming that the biochemical conditions, like the process, how much water comes in, the conditions of the landfill, how it's operated, do not change, you can use that model to predict into the future. Okay, so there's a big if there. So you have a series of uh, of time of the settlement data. You fit the model, and if the the operations remain exactly the same, you have a good chance of this model having being a relatively good predictor of the future. If the biochemical conditions, the operations do change, or even the solid waste change, um, then these models have no predictive capacity. They will be off by a lot. Um, so, for example, if you have a landfill that is, you are measuring settlements, the way I'm going to show you, um, and then you cover it with a cover system, like a geomembrane, like a cover system or anything else, you're going to stop the influx of water going in. And that influx of water is really, really important for the degradation settlements, which are very a, a big part of the settlements that are taking place. And so you will see a slowdown. And these models will not capture that. That, that. That's not what they're made for. Okay. So to reliably predict long-term settlement, an understanding of the coupling between various parts of the waste degradation process is needed. And we have reached a level now, I think, definitely at the state of the art, but I see it also in the state of practice, where we can actually capture some of that coupling. And I just want to bring it up because um, uh, I think it's important that as a profession we move forward in that direction. And also because now we can see some of this data, we can collect this data, for example, with UAVs, as I will show you. Okay. So, in, an, in terms of really fundamental understanding of the settlement process, um, we, we, are, we have to recognize that a very big part starts with microbes. As civil engineers, we tend to not like biology too much, but sorry, this is a process by which really microbes, archaea, uh, and bacteria, and other microbes are actually taking the waste, solid waste, they hydrolyze it, uh, they, uh, and then eventually uh, uh, they hydrolyze they, they it as pseudogenesis. Eventually, they, they build methane, methane and carbon dioxide. This is really what's happening here. And that's why we're installing a gas collection system and, and, and because we, we have to capture the methane. Now, this is not on the only thing that's happening here. And so a realistic modeling of the, of the way of the waste settlements involves starting with the microbes, 
understanding how they degrade the material and how they generate biogas and leachate. These changes affect the waste composition. What you put in the waste at the beginning will be different a month later, a year later, 10 years later. How different? It's a function of a number of things, all the things that I discussed before, but they will be different. Waste composition will change. Waste structure will change. The unit weight or density of the solid waste will change. And when all of this change, things that we design landfills for, like shear strength and settlements, volume, will change. These changes affect the hydraulic conductivity in the waste mass and the gas conductivity. And there are very important changes because changes in hydraulic conductivity and how liquids permeate as the waste degrades affects whether the microbes that were thriving at some place in the landfill will keep on receiving liquids or not. And if they don't receive additional liquids or another and, and, and other nutrients, they will not stop, they will not continue doing this. They will die off and the process will slow down there and maybe pick up somewhere else. And only when we capture this holistically, we're able to really understand what's going on. So this is the process and I'm hoping I'm explaining it well and you find it useful. We've done this also in, in the lab at a large size. Uh, there have been experiments that are even bigger than this, but this is like a diameter of 30 centimeters or 12 inches and twice that in height. We put solid waste in it, all of it, not, not, not sieving through it, just the whole same stuff there. We recirculate liquids through the, this sealed system, which represents a landfill. We generate gas and we measure the liquid chemistry, the, the gas chemistry, the amount of gas, the change in the settlement. We're measuring settlement of the waste mass. This comes, this comes down and really understand the whole process as I've shown it here. I don't want to go further in that topic because uh, that's a bit beyond what we want to cover, but I want to make sure that you're aware of this and that we're making good progress in that direction. This is the type of data we're generating, which is really the process. The solid phase is experiencing with time. So these experiments may last 1500 days. And I have focused here the first year uh, because here we're circulating liquids aggressively. So the process happens really, really quickly, all right? But you see a change in the total weight of the material, a change in the total volume. This means changes in the unit weight, sometimes significant, sometimes less significant. And also a change in the rate by which it happens. The rate of set in the rate of settlement, this, this long-term compression is the rate of settlement is, is not constant as we typically assume. At the same time, we can look at the gas chemistry. We can look at the amount of gas, and you can see here an increase in as we recirculate liquids, we reach a peak in methane production, and of course the total volume. We can look at the leachate chemistry, which I think is something we're monitoring in many landfills. And you can see, for example, the chemical oxygen demand really picking up. I'm hoping you can see that in my cursor. Um, sorry, let me try to picking up. Um, and slowing down. And that change in the chemical oxygen demand, for example, is predates, but it's, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's related from a chemistry perspective to the methane production. You can see a peak in the chemical oxygen demand followed by a peak in methane. And of course, settlements are associated with those. You can see settlements here taking place and they are correlated to methane generation and the chemical oxygen demand. This is a real picture. In the lab, we even look at DNA concentrations and we can see a peak in the DNA concentration indicating there's lots of microbes there. Lots of microbes uh, generating a lot of gas, causing a lot of settlement. Okay. And although this is in the lab, we have used this data to create a, a, a model that is really fully a model that captures all these processes. And we have deployed that model in, in full-scale applications. Um, at least uh, this is really, and, and there are other models like this also. What I want you to get out of this before I go any further, uh, definitely will not go any further today, is the rate and amount of settlement is definitely significantly dependent on waste composition, the landfill operations, and varies spatially and temper. So using a constant sysabalpha alpha e 
value or other equivalent parameters, which is what we're typically doing, can be problematic. And in some cases, it may be conservative, in which case that's good. But in other cases, it may not be conservative. Okay. And so, if you look at here, this is basically this is it's shown here is the C sub A coefficient. You can see that C sub A coefficient really goes to 0.15, then drops down to 0.05 and becomes even lower in some other cases. So if you were to use a constant C sub alpha, depending on what value you use, you may be off on the conservative or the unconservative side. All right. So with that understanding now, let's talk about what we're doing in the field. And I'll be glad to hear what you're doing, but these are the types of things that I've seen, uh, both in, uh, in practice as well as in the literature. By far, the most common way to measure settlements in the field are surface monuments, okay? And we put the surface monument there, and then we, we distribute those. Uh, you put it in the landfill when you decide that you're gonna track settlements for a while, and they're spaced every 500 feet. I don't know what you're doing, but I have seen a, wi a wide range. Bottom line is you cannot put too many because there's operations taking place. And so, uh, so I've seen, you know, 500 feet as a, as a classic number. Um, you, it, this will give you, you, you measure that with a GPS or with a total station, and you can see how this goes down as the way settles and track that. Okay, so you have uh, that measurement. If you're interested in having settlements, not just at the surface, but also at some depth, we use settlement plates uh, or, or something like a Sondex tubes, maybe you've seen or you used. Uh, settlement plates is a classic, very simple way to do it, where basically you put that settlement plate on the ground. It has a footing, waste goes on top of it. There is a plastic sleeve that disconnects really the settlement of that footing with the waste on top. It really follows the whatever happens below. And so you can track the top of that plate and as it settles down with a compressible layer, you can still see how much it's settled. And, and that will allow you to see a little bit in depth and separate from the surface. I have seen horizontal inclinometers. I wouldn't call this a mainstream application. It has been done in the literature. And, and you could put an horizontal inclinometer and track basically, at least at the beginning, you place more waste, track how the material is settling. And also even vertical extensometers have been used to measure really uh, settlements throughout the waste mass. Waste mass. These are the main approaches that I, that I will say are being used for settlement monitoring. And they all have similar drawbacks. Uh, all of them are localized measurements. Really, they give you the settlement at that point. Uh, of course, you could put many of these, uh, of these uh, monuments, though this, uh, uh, many, of, many of these monuments, and um, and in which case you can actually uh, have more spatial data. But if you put more, we have, you start affecting landfill operations. Uh, and as a result, in my experience, they're placed late. They're not placed during operations. They're placed much after there is a lot of activity in that area. And as a result, really, you're kind of delaying how the measurements of, of, of that you can get. At the same time, they can get damaged by uh, by a compactor or some other equipment in the in the landfill and so that damage can be you know it's costly of course we don't want that uh, and so how do we use that in engineering practice again i appreciate your feedback but this is how i've done it with uh, in some of the projects is you have these monuments at some matrix it may not be as dense as i'm showing here but this could be like uh, some distance 100 feet 500 feet you put these monuments um, you this is like in plan view of the landfill this could be a cross-section view it doesn't have to be flat you know it, it's never flat it's at least five percent but sometimes uh, steeper if you're on the slope of the landfill and in each of these places you you measure in settlements and that way that that you that location is sitting on some ways of of certain thickness which could be different from point to point and could have also potentially different properties so we're worried about at least two main things uh, number one is we want the grading slope that slope to not reverse or to not become flat because if it does become flat really you have next time it rains you will have ponding of water which will go through the waste mass and that's not something we want 
okay so you want to track really how much this is settling how much this is settling and make sure you maintain at least a two to five percent slope uh, or you may have other other more strict criteria the second thing is if you are putting a cover system you want to track the axial strain on the cover if this is the original length between the two points and that's where you measure your you're laying your geomembrane or your just gcl your just synthetics on top and then that settles there will be a different and the slope changes and there's a difference l final and that difference between the initial length and the final is really strain you divide that by the initial length you can find how much strain your your geomem your geosynthetic will experience and there are limits to these strains we don't want to get them to very large strains there are different numbers in the literature one percent five percent ten percent for gcls but they have a limit okay and uh, again yeah, because we have a lot of settlement in the solid waste that that limit can be exceeded in some cases easily so we have to be careful and i think you all are because that's a classic thing we wait for the waste to settle down before we put our geosynthetics in so this is how in my experience been done in the engineering practice so what i would like to do is show you an alternative way uh, of, of doing this that hopefully will be useful and we what we can do is we can fly UAVs uh, and create 3D models by stitching together optical imagery using the structure from motion technique. And I'll describe that technique more. And what we can do is um, if we apply this technique, the advantage is that we're a bit high, we're higher than the equipment, the, the operations of the landfill. So no damage to our equipment, no accidents, um we can create settlement measurements throughout the landfill there are limitations to that but definitely spatially resolved settlements not just in the points which is what i've shown you before and then we can deploy these uavs as often as we want every month if we want every three months every once per year and collect what we call multi-temporal data which we like to call as 4d 4d is really 3d meaning a 3d model which i will describe plus duration so that's the fourth dimension time and so we call these 4d models and that will be really really cheap okay compared to other things you can be really really cheap so some of you may have seen this if you haven't i would like to describe very briefly the structure from motion technique what we do is we have a camera optical camera like the ones you've seen i'm sure you some of you may be using this already we've been working with the with uavs on this type of approaches for the last 10 years at least um but what you do is you fly on the matrix and uh, you take photos and you stitch these photos together you make sure the photos have overlap with each other significant overlap 70 to 80 percent of the photos are the same but they are also have an additional 20 percent that's beyond and these photos you stitch them together in 3d space to create a 3d model this is classic photogrammetry but here it's applied in the digital space and it's a bit more complicated because you in classic photogrammetry you know where you are while in the, in the when you're flying with the drone you know where you are but with some error but i can describe that so I, I, I want to show you this, uh, to explain this technique a bit better and what we're doing. I have a video from one of our projects for the World Bank where we're matching floodplains. And so I'll use that for, uh, to, like, for explanations, but the exact same thing, you can think of a landfill below. So what you see in this floodplain in the, in the island of Dominica is you see these green triangles, which are photos taken by the UAV. The UAV is above ground, the triangle for 50 feet high or 100 feet, Putting, taking these photos. And these photos are stitched together pixel by pixel. There is a little bit of more detail on that, but pixel by pixel and create a 3D model of whatever is in the, in, in the, in, in the target. So here you can see a construction equipment that's in the target. You can see the construction equipment is modeled in 3D. That was not our goal, but you can see the excavators really modeled very, very accurately. And so you create that's that's what you do. You, you stitch this together in 3D space. Now I'm going to pause here 
because there is one more thing I want to show you. There is this blue and the red circles. And what are these are, are points which we have surveyed with a GPS RTK so that we know their location very, very well. And so we collect blue and red points from a field data acquisition are identical. Uh, what we do is we use the blue point to, we have a 3D model, but we orient it in a 3D space in a geospecific coordinate system uh, by, by pinning it down, the, our model down at these blue points. And we use the red points um, to check the error of our model. So we use the blue points, we put it in 3D space with specific coordinate systems and say, this is our model and this is correct. Then we have the red points, the, uh, the checkpoints that really we know their location within two to three centimeters or maybe five centimeters. And we can see at that point what our model says is the location of that point versus what was measured at that location with the GPS. That gives us an error of that model. Okay. So I'm hoping I explained this well. And uh, so let's go back to one of the landfills that I'll be I'll, I'm talking about. And then um, I'm seeing a little bit. Of, I need to make sure that I'm, I'm doing well on time. Um, Let's say, uh, and so you can use a technique to create 3D models every time you deploy in the field. And so, for example, here's a picture of a landfill. It's not a picture, it's a 3D model of a landfill, of a canyon landfill. I'm going to show that uh, more details about it later. And this is on July 30, 2019. And you can focus maybe if you want in this area. Uh, and then if we went there six months later, and you can see December 18. There's difference. And so what you can do is go there and uh, every time you want, as often as you want, and create a digital 3D model of this place with everything on it. Okay. Now, this is not a picture. Okay. Uh, I want to make sure that you understand whether any pixel in this photo has an X, Y, and Z coordinate. All right. And so if I have two models, one in July and one in December, and I have an X, Y, and Z for each of them, I can take the difference. I can, I can put this in my, in my processing software. Could, we can discuss that. So what software that would be. Uh, Cloud Compare, for those of you maybe already doing things in that area, Cloud Compare is an open access software, and take the difference and see exactly how where material was placed and where material was excavated. Here's what I'm showing you here with colors. Um, everywhere you see red color, the brighter the red it is, it could be as, as much as 12 meters of material placed, you know, the way we place in solid waste, right? Everywhere you see blue is up to 10 meters of material loss. Now that happens because of settlement, it happens also because of excavations, and for the most part you don't see 10 meters of uh, settlement, really what you see is about 2 meters or something, okay? Uh, but bottom line is, if I have these two points, I can calculate the material waste material placed and the waste material excavated throughout my model. Okay. Now, uh, the accuracy matters a lot, as you know, and so I'll describe that more. But I think anything in this you measure, you measure easily changes in the order of a few centimeters, a few being single digit centimeters. Um, and, and, and you could even do better than that in, in certain conditions, but I can describe that. That's definitely more than what we need for volume calculations and for settlements in, in landfills. Now, I have been trying to focus more on settlements. I'm touching on other topics that I'm hoping you're finding interesting. I do want to make sure that, you, that I point out that this type of approach doesn't have to be used on settlements, which is today's focus. And you can use it to calculate disposal waste capacity. You can monitor landfill operations and see how waste is placed, how much waste is placed, and or, or how construction is proceeding. You can use it for construction quality assurance, construction quality control as build drawings if you want, but you have to be careful about the accuracies. And you can use it to inspect the landfill infrastructure. Uh, you can detect methane leaks, uh, and I'll describe that just a little bit. And finally, you can use that for post-closure development and calculating settlements. So I'm focusing today on optical data, 
but you can do the exact same the exact same process by by using lidar data so you can mine amount a lidar sensor on the uav and collect lidar data if for some reason you do not like optical i personally like optical and can describe why but you could actually do a lidar and some of you i know are paying for flyovers with lidar data from actual manned planes uh, and so i think there is now a new technology that can do this cheaper i would say um, now for some of these problems an optical camera may not be enough and so we have used infrared cameras we have used geophysics mounted on uavs we have used laser sensors to measure methanes, methane 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 concentration and so i just have one picture here for this because it's not the topic of today but the reason i'm doing that is because i want you to realize that it's not just about measuring settlements there is a lot more much better monitoring that we can do by putting the right sensors and tracking the right things uh, and goes back to the models that i've shown you at the beginning that the coupled models uh, that in the past you wouldn't be able to generate the input for that models but now we are with this type of data that i'm showing you here so here's an example of looking at the health assessment of a landfill we have a drone that has an optical camera has an infrared camera and has a laser a tunable dyed laser that can measure methane concentrations um, um, completely remotely. And so you can use that information to find thermal hotspots at the surface, but that's indicative of what's happening below. Classifying soil materials if or waste materials if they're different, you can see that. You can use that to track methane leaks or look at ground cracks, which may be indicative of settlements, may be indicative of, of, of land, uh, imped, uh, future landfill failures. On the lower part, I have data here collected with the UAV in terms of methane concentration. And you can see very low methane concentrations here, but you can see that there is methane concentration. And where you have, I have unfortunately, I haven't overlaid it in these slides, but you can see that the methane is higher at very specific spots. It's not the same methane leaked throughout the landfill. It's not uniform. These hotspots tend to be where you have cracks. You know that, I think. And so you can see these cracks really, really well with your optical data and with your infrared data. And so I want to just, and that's as far as we'll go with the bigger picture. All right. Um, so going back to the landfill sites, I'm just going to apply what I just described. There are two landfill sites, and City of Midland landfill in Michigan, that's an excavation and fill landfill. And this is the Xerolaca landfill in Greece, where I come from, where it's a canyon landfill. And um, I'm looking a little bit of time. Uh, I'm running, not, not running, but I'm going to go a little bit faster on this part. The Midland landfill, you can read about it. It's a landfill that's in a relatively wet climate. And what we, why we like that landfill, because it has, of course, it has cells, at least for the active part. And in half of the landfill is just a subtitle, the dry tomb landfill, although it receives a lot of liquids simply because of the amount of precipitation, very different than if this landfill was located in California or Arizona. But the other half of that landfill is actively a bioreactor. Uh, actively, liquids are recirculated and, um, uh, in, in, in this waste mass. So we deployed many more times. I'm showing you data here from uh, three deployments. Uh, uh, in one case, there was a, an interval of 122 days between these two dates, and then an, an interval of 194 days between these two. We used a simple uh, uh, Phantom 4 professional UAV uh, with a 20 megapixel camera to do to collect the data. And what you typically do is fly with a lawnmower type um, uh, flight path. Um, so you can see the drone starts from here, goes there, comes back, and does this lawnmower type. And as it does that, it collects photos. It flies in this pattern to collect photos at the 80% overlap. It's very, very important to have the overlap with the photos in order to do the structure from motion technique. And in this case, uh, this is completely autonomous. So uh, you, you, you set the path and the drone is doing it autonomously. You don't have to control the UAV. I mean, you have to supervise it, but you don't have to be operating the handles when that happens. So this is again, uh, you once you set that path to cover your entire landfill, the UAV will be 
say fly maybe a hundred feet the closer you fly the higher resolution your models are but at a hundred feet for example you get uh, with this type of cameras we have centimeter level resolution meaning its pixel is centimeter is in one it could be a centimeter one centimeter in in, in size so that's a very high resolution unless you're looking for small cracks uh, you can do a lot with that data now as i said you need to have ground control points to do this carefully so you use an, an, an rtk gps uh, similar to what you will use conventionally in, in, in a serving these points you don't need a lot of them maybe 10 of them 12 of them to pin your model down and then have an error assessment of your model and uh, this is a a 3d model of that of that landfill it's kind of a flat landfill in this area and, and you can see it here but hopefully you can see uh, the the uh, a little bit of the topography and uh, i think the flyover will come a bit closer and you will see what this landfill looks like and the operations okay it's a bit faster than it needs to be but at least you get the pick this in this case each pixel with the data we collected was about a, a bit less than two centimeters and we use the control points and the checkpoints so you can see here all the yellow points are used to pin the model down and then we look for errors by using the checkpoints and we have basically an error accuracy uh, two to five centimeters uh, so meaning that you say you're in some place in 3d space and really the based on the rtk gps you are two to five centimeters away which frankly is the accuracy of the measurement itself so i, I don't think you can do a, a lot better than this now one thing that we have in landfills and i'm sure you, some of you are thinking about is we have vegetation so we want to to make sure that we filter that out and there are classification for that you can do it in a semi-automatic manner and so the outcome is what this one here when you do this you do this in the service you take the difference you get a settlement profile uh, and so what you see here is different colors for different amounts of settlement purple means almost basically no settlement to very little settlement red means a lot of settlement you can see there are some areas where i have no data these are the areas where between these two surveys a lot has happened meaning that there was there was um uh, activity and so you cannot calculate settlements and that's why you don't have that data so you calculate the difference in height between each pixel you get the delta h you have the time that it took for that to take place you have the initial thickness of the waste uh, here uh, if you know the base grades and your survey so you basically have all the input to calculate the c sub alpha coefficient and you can see here it changes from zero to one one being a high number i had told you before values of about 0.4 and that's really what you see here 0.3.4 for the most part this is what the kind of data you get we have two three deployments so you have average settlement for two spans so this is between first and second deployment between second deployment and third deployment you can see sysab alpha values for the conventional landfill of about 0.3 0.34 which is what we expect and the bioreactor landfill not surprisingly it is it is uh, changing more uh, uh, there is a difference here and it has to do with the slowdown of the bioreactor operations but i'm not going to describe that further but you can see it you can see the slowdown this is while operations are taking place right similar thing in the in the other landfill the canyon landfill again two surveys um, uh, one between five months difference one within four to within months you can decide how often you want to deploy this was not a, a this in our case was a kind of a research project and then the actual owner nowadays pays maybe for one survey per uh, per year this is what the landfill looks like in north of Oto in july second deployment in december third deployment in february again centimeter level model we have the base grades, or at least an estimate of the base grades. So you can calculate the waste thickness. You can see the waste thickness here can be up to 55 meters. That's 150 feet. In some cases, though, it's much shallower. And it's important to know that because that thickness affects the calculations. 
Here are settlements for the two intervals. Remember, this is a five-month interval, and so you have smaller settlements taking place. This is a 14-month interval, and you can see much more settlements closer to one meter, uh, in, up to one meter in, within these 14 months, maybe half meter in half the time. You can calculate vertical strains, and you can see here the vertical strains throughout the topography. That's really just the settlement divided by the thickness of the waste. And then you can calculate the cis-alpha E coefficients, which are again here, for the most part in the area is about 0.25. And here there's a significant activity, smaller thickness, and you see increase in cis-alpha. That's more related to being this being very, very fresh waste. On average, in this landfill in Greece, which has a significant, significant precipitation in that location, very similar to the Michigan landfill, you can see the C-sub-A coefficients that are similar for the two landfills. The last thing I will show you, and we're doing more work in that direction, is the axial strains. Now, there is no cover here, so you don't care about the axial strains right now because let it strain. Uh, but if you if you had decided to put a cover right now, you could calculate the axial strains. And in the conventional way, what you will do is you will calculate the average axial strain between the distance of your measurements. So if you've put your monuments every 500 feet, you will calculate an average axial strain every 500 feet. If you put it every 100 feet, every 100 feet. Here, you don't have to do this. You could actually measure strains every few centimeters. Here, I just calculated for 10 meter intervals. You can decide the interval you want to use because what really happens is the strain, the axial strain is a localized issue. You can have places that settled a lot locally and others that did not. And you don't want to do too much averaging. So here you see like an averaging of every 10 meters, which is much closer than what you will ever have from, a, from, the, from the alternative approaches where you see positive values, which are the, the red colors, you have extension in the cover. So a cover like that could be 1% strain, which is not devastating, but over that time, there was 1% strain. Uh, if you have compression, you have negative, uh, it's, it's the blue color. And I, um, in conclusion, uh, um, I'm hoping to have showed that the uh, UAVs uh, equipped with optical cameras can be used to monitor landfills by differencing 3D models. You can have centimeter level resolution and high accuracy. Um, the, the rate, you can calculate the rate of settlements, axial strains along the surface, which are really, really important for closure and post-closure development. And the rate of long-term settlement in bioreactor landfill was shown to be higher than the conventional landfill. When, while the two conventional landfills with similar climates were actually found to be similar. With that, thank you very much. And I know we have about a few minutes for questions and I'll stop here. Great. Thank you, Demetrius. Uh, good, good to see you. Sorry I missed the introduction. Um, I'm over in Brisbane, Australia, attending the first geosynthetics conference arranged by the Austro-Asian Austro chapter of the International Society of Geosynthetic Society. So let me go start with the questions. Here we go. Oh, and also the important piece of that is it is 2.53 a.m. in Brisbane. Oh, wow. So first, first question, how does waste settlement differ from the landfill side slope of about 30% with a slope of about 30% to the top deck at 2 to 5% slope? how it differs in general you mean yeah yeah in other words what's what's more um maybe the magnitude and rate is different yeah absolutely not only that is different and that's important and definitely with the data that you're we're describing here you can see that one thing i will tell you is this this the waste is not only settling in the vertical direction but because of the open space it has the opportunity to bulge out that's not something you always see because because you actually regrade these slopes and you maintain them, but there is actually open space. And so we see definitely vertical deformation, but also sideways a little bit, which is part of the process. It's not something to worry about uh, unless it becomes excessive. But um, And so you, usually with conventional techniques, you cannot measure that. But with these techniques, you could, you could actually see that. Oh, great. Okay. Next question is, 
what are the limitations of a UAV for a quarry or a high wall waste disposal site? And this could be a very timely topic uh, given current events. Yeah, no, this technique, this technique, the way I showed it is applied extensively in quarries and actually big uh, mine spoil, uh, spoil uh, mine um, disposal facilities because of their size also. And uh, it, it frankly was used there earlier than we used it now in landfills or in other applications. Uh, you can actually use it also to classify rock masses. Well, that's one of the reasons I like the optical data. It doesn't give you only geometry, but it gives you also RGB, red, green, blue uh, optical attributes that you can look and see, okay, well, I see this geometric feature, but what is it? And with the optical data, you can see it. So uh, yeah, lots of applications there. And, and I, I put some, some papers in the literature related to landfills specifically, but uh, if you go to my website, we definitely have uh, many papers related to these applications, these techniques in, uh, in mines and quarries and uh, rock mechanics application. Perfect. Next question is, what software are you using to create the 3D models? Do you use this same software to compare the two models to determine volumes? And then I'll ask you some questions about the UAV. Yes, absolutely. Uh, so a number of softwares there are, there are we, we are doing, we are using lots of different software. The, the classic conventional things that are used in the industry, commercial is cloud, com, uh, sorry, um, Pix4D is one of them. That was one of the earlier starters. Uh, is a software that is used for that reason. The, the second one that is also very strong is Context Capture from Bentley. Bentley is the company that also uses has now Plaxis and SlopeW and all of those geotechnical softwares. They have this software. It's called Context Capture. We have been using both of them in many applications. There's other. Uh, additional commercial software. We also have some of the scripts that we've been using for research purposes for some of these things. Although the things that I've shown you here have been done with a conventional commercial software, like I mentioned. In this case, I believe it speaks for D. Okay. During your presentation, did you talk about the UAV and what what you're using, what cameras you have on the UAV and so on? Yeah, yeah, I, I did very briefly. Uh, uh, Phantom 4 Pro, is what was used in this case. This one has a, I had a point in the slides. This has a 20 megapixel camera, which allows you even at 100 feet to have centimeter level resolution at your at the surface. That's what, what was used here. There are smaller UAVs, there are bigger UAVs. There is also now UAVs that have RTK GPS on board, which helps you a lot with reducing basically your number of ground control points and checkpoints that you need because they have better positioning they know exactly much better where they are compared to non-rtk uh, that, right. that drone that drone goes you know the one that i've shown here you know with everything in it because you need batteries and all the stuff you're looking about the three thousand five hundred dollars or so although these prices are changing okay uh, we're really getting a lot of questions now, Demetrius, so uh, we may not get through all of them, but here we go. Um, oh, let's see. Can you use the structure from motion technique uh, for optical infrared imaging to detect the liquid distribution within a waste mass in a landfill? Okay. Uh, the, answer, the, the immediate answer is, is no. Uh, what you have here is a surface measurement, so you cannot see with depth what's happening. However, the, what, what you are measuring at the surface is a function of what's happening at depth. So when there is a lot of activity at depth, you will see more settlement at the surface. When the things heat up at depth, you will see more higher temperature at the surface, which you can measure with your infrared. And so because of, you know, if there is a heat source, it will diffuse. And so you can find hot spots from the surface. but saying exactly this is the source of this thing is at 30 feet you will need to do some modeling it's not just the field measurements themselves and and so yeah but we have used geophysics on uavs and, and that's where these come in that may help you give insights about what's happening at depth also that's a okay section. we've got about a minute let me try to squeeze one more in and then we'll wrap up we'll handle all the other questions we received during the seminar or webinar and afterwards in a follow-up podcast. Okay, last one. 
and sorry for those that I, I don't get to here, but is it possible to differentiate the type of waste, for example, non-biodegradable versus biodegradable versus, say, construction and demolition debris with the UAV? Absolutely. I'm, 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 we have done this. More organic rich will tend to, to degrade more. You can see that. You can measure that. Uh, we have also done tests on CND, and that settles, but not as much. Uh, you, in some cases, you can have mixed ways where they put sludges, and those sludges settle even more, and you can see that. Absolutely. One thing to know, though, is that you're looking at the settlement at the top. So if you have different layers, you know, where lot, the waste is changing, you're looking at the aggregate of the whole thing. Uh, you're not looking at, you cannot decompose that in different layers. But absolutely, we have seen very systematic trends from one to the other. Yeah. Great. Demetrius, can you put your, or share your screen again and go to those last slides in the yes. PowerPoint? Yes. And, and these are the references that are in the in the system that you guys have. And uh, yeah, and so this is the contact. Yeah, please go ahead. This is I the, can't your, see your, you I can can't see, see your screen. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry about that. Okay. Yeah, so I was just saying that the, the, the list of references are available here and then... Um, Perfect. Your slide, yeah. Okay, and, and so there's Demetrius Zekos's contact information as, as well as mine if you have additional questions. Okay, next slide. Okay, um, our next webinar is a live panel discussion related to the longevity and application of exposed and unexposed geomembranes. We have a great panel set up for July 9th, right? Demetrius, it's really small. Is it July 9th? Uh, July 12th. July 12th. Yes. Okay, great. And then finally, our last slide is the FGI website. All prior webs, uh, webinars are on the website and you can watch them, uh, many other useful information on the website, including a brand new operation and maintenance ma guideline manual for water reservoirs. So Demetrius, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, we'll be in touch about a podcast to answer all the other questions, but thanks for a very timely topic and presentation. Thank you for the invitation. It was a pleasure. Great. See you, Demetrius. Thanks. Bye.